0: Good morning. It's good to be the together today, as Craig said, and we're happy for those of you that are visiting with us today as well. We're finishing up our monthly studies that, that we've done all month on characteristics of the life of Jesus and some of the events that occurred in his life. and We're going to talk this morning about an event that's commonly referred to as the Transfiguration. You can read about it in uh, several of the Gospels. We're going to read Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 17. This may be a story you're familiar with, and maybe you've never heard it before. Hopefully, you'll find it interesting either way, and there's some specific lessons that I believe we can draw from this story, and hopefully, we can all be benefited and edified by the reading of this story this morning. Matthew chapter 17, and verse number 1, it says, "'After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves.'" And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son. With whom I am well pleased, listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is a picture that I found that an artist tried to represent the story that we just read. It's kind of a tough thing to do as you read about some of these miraculous things and events in the Scriptures that are hard for us to wrap our heads around. It's hard to um, get a picture of that, but maybe this helps you this morning as you think about what we just read. But it's a, a very short story and an interesting story that Jesus took three of the disciples and went up on this mountain. And the Bible says he was transfigured before them. So this man tries to depict that um, Jesus here. I don't have any idea if that's what it really looked like. You'll have to kind of develop your own imagery for that, but I think he did a pretty good job of it, um, both showing Moses and Elijah there with him as well as the reaction of the apostles that were there to witness that event. It's a very fascinating story to me. That word transfigured there um, comes from a root word called metamorpho, and if you th- that looks familiar, it's similar to the word that we use for metamorphosis Now, When you think about metamorphosis, I think everybody tends to think about science class and you think about the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. And that process is called metamorphosis and how there's an an actual and physical change that occurs there. And it's the same thing that happened here. It's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 12 when he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When he's admonishing Christians there that we shouldn't take on a form that mirrors what we were and what the world looks like, but yet we should be transformed. There should be an actual transformation in us. Physical, mental, all those things where the life of a Christian looks different. Same thing happened here. He was transfigured before them. It's The definition is exactly that. It changed into another form to transform. It, Strong's even uses, as it tries to use the words in a sentence, it even uses this event to, to say that. Christ's appearance was changed and was resplendent, with divine brightness on the Mount of Transfiguration. So that's what we're talking about this morning, this physical transformation. Now, a lot of people read this story. If you do any kind of research or Bible study on this story, you quickly find a lot of material, um, sermons and studies and uh, blog posts and all that kinds of stuff on finding your mountaintop event. And you can find a ton of stock sermons on finding your mountaintop event. And how people encourage Christians to seek that mountaintop event that happens in your life as a Christian. You know, you're obviously not going to see Jesus in a way like this. But you think about how, um, you know, the world wants to deal with religion today. They, they want those kind of events. They want that emotional response to God. They want to, they want to feel something. They want that kind of thunder and lightning interaction with God. And so there's a ton, as I said, a ton of material on that. And I actually think one of the things we should think about this morning is to not seek for your mountaintop event. The lesson of this story is not that we're all going to have some kind of event in our lives where we get led on the mountaintop and see Jesus as a bright light and are impacted in such a way that it changes us forever. We're not going to find that. That's not a promise that we're given. And that's not what this is teaching us. And so while I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, I wanted to address it because it feels like in the broader Christian world, these types of things are so prevalent. It's all emotional. It's all what kind of emotions do I feel? How does this touch me? How can I touch other people? How, what is my relationship with Jesus like to where it, you know, it tickles my insides and makes me feel good about things, what I'm doing? That's not what he's trying to teach us. And I think people spend a lot of time and effort and energy and waste a lot of their lives looking for mountaintop events. When they could be spending their time doing what God's asked them to do and being the kind of Christian that God wants them to be. Don't look for your mountaintop event this morning. And we're going to talk about what this story means because I don't believe that that's what it's teaching here. It's not to build us up that Hebrews chapter one and verse number one says long ago. There was a time and a place where God interacted with man, maybe more so in this way, but that time's come and gone. And this isn't a sermon on, you know, conversation with God or the miraculous things that we read about in the scriptures. We don't have time to do that this morning, but we need to understand that that ended with Jesus. With Jesus, we have everything we need. He said, in these last days, he's given us his son. Everything is complete with Jesus. We have no need for these mountaintop experiences. We have his word. And it's complete. And it's everything that we need to live our lives like he's asked us to lead. So what is the point of the story? I think there's three things that we can really learn from this story, maybe directly or indirectly. But there's three things that I want to talk about um, that we can learn from this transfiguration story. The first being the fact that Jesus is different. Craig spoke last Sunday on the deity of Christ, and I know he was supposed to be earlier in the month. I think the original outline would have lent itself to this a little bit better where I didn't immediately step on everything he talked about. We're not going to spend a ton of time on that, but I think we would be remiss if we didn't address the fact that one of the things we're supposed to get out of this is the fact that Jesus is different. You know, you think about the men that walked with Jesus during his ministry, that that physically spent time with him on earth. And in their interactions with them. And then you think about events like this where they saw him in such a different way. I think that had to be part of what was going on here. You know, Peter, James, and John spent so much time with him, but yet they didn't see him like this. And it was so impactful to, to them. They fell on their face. And they saw the deity of Christ. It's fascinating for me to think about what their reaction to this might have been. You know, what the thought process might have been when they saw this side after having seen him, you know, as a human for so long. And then this bright white light, and his face shining like the sun. It's fascinating for me to really try to get in their minds and f- figure out what they were thinking about. And then as they saw these great heroes of faith, Moses and Elijah, talking with the Lord, they certainly knew who they were. And you think about how we look back through the lens of time at the what we call the heroes of faith, all these men and women of faith. And yet Jesus is different. God made it clear that this wasn't a meeting of the three amigos. This wasn't just some, you know, equal representation with Elijah and Moses and Jesus. He made it clear to Peter that, that Jesus is different. And I think that's one of the important points for us to gain out of this. I think about, when I think about the imagery of this story, I think about the story when Jesus went to, um, see John the Baptist and my slides aren't advancing. So I'm going to read these, but apparently they're not going to show up on the screen. So I'm sorry about that. In Matthew chapter three, we, we read about when Jesus went to be baptized of John. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If you do any kind of study on that, on that event as well, you see imagery that's similar to the one that we saw here. It's just going to be late, I guess. <laughs> now it's advancing, I don't know. But I see, a, I see a very similar picture in my head as I think about those two events on how you know, the, the image of Jesus itself was changed. You hear the voice of God. In both cases, he talks about how pleased he is with, with what Jesus has done. And even John recognized the fact that Jesus was different. He didn't even want to baptize him. He knew that there was a difference there. Jesus, of course, intended to fulfill God's full will and his command and went through with that. And, of course, we get to see the result of that. In Acts chapter 3, we read about an event where it's recounting uh, Peter talking. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother's. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So Peter even made reference to the fact that that Moses and the prophets, all those people knew that Jesus was different. They prophesied about him. They prophesied about the coming Messiah. And they recognized that. And that's one of the things that we're supposed to learn from this story. And it may be no better verse. Craig alluded to this verse in his lesson. John chapter 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Maybe the best passage we could read to summarize how different Jesus is. He's different because he was there in the beginning. He's different because everything was created by him and through him. And he's different because forgiveness only comes through him. A few chapters later, he says so. In John chapter 14, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And as I think about them seeing Jesus on that mountain and that bright image of him, I can't help but think they knew, they recognized the fact right there that he was so different. That he was the Messiah. Number two, I think we get a really good picture of the faultiness of man's thinking. You kind of got to love Peter, don't you? I mean, he, his reaction in so many of the situations that we read about with him, you know, we tend to use that as sort of a, a sounding board for just criticism. We want to just criticize all of his reactions to everything, and then I try to put myself in Peter's place. and, What would I have done in this scenario? I have no idea how I would have reacted in this scenario. So Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Why don't we, I'll build three tents, one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. And at that very time, he's interrupted by this cloud descending and um, descending on him. And then the voice of God interrupting him essentially to correct him to say, no, this is my son. You listen to him. We don't know if God was displeased with Peter He certainly wasn't rebuked heavily here. I think it was almost more of a clarification than than a rebuking. But God made it clear that it was about Jesus. But we can get a picture of how men's thinking sometimes gets in our own way. We know Jesus is the very image of God. Peter alludes to this later in his writings which is pretty interesting to me in second Peter chapter one, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God, the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's fascinating to think about Peter later. You know, he he doesn't recount the fact that, that he offered to build the tents, but he uses this story to talk about the majesty of God. If you think about this verse in context, Second Peter chapter 1, it's the Christian graces chapter, where he goes through this list of things and says, Add to your faith virtue, virtue knowledge, knowledge temperance, temperance patience, patience God, all these things. And he goes on, we, we always stop when we read that passage, but he goes on in that chapter to, to really kind of hammer those things home. He says, I'm going to remind you, I'm going to I remind you of these things, and I'm going to continue to remind you of these things. Basically until I'm dead, is what he says in that chapter. And then he talks about this. He talks about the majesty of God, and he links those two together. You want your mountaintop experiences? you'll find it in Jesus. You'll find it if you do the things that he's instructed us to do. As Peter said, I'm going to beat it into your heads. I'm going to remind you about it. Do the things that Peter constantly reminded them of this chapter and he directly linked it to this experience that he had. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we get a really good picture into man's thinking or maybe to how man ought to think. And Paul was pretty good at this, I think, in that he he had a fairly accurate... Sort of self self worth view of himself, or I don't know the best way to say that, but he his view of himself I think was was fairly well in check with how God would want it to be. You think about all the times where he said, "I'm the chief of sinners," or where, where we read about the war of the, the war of the flesh and how he wanted to do the things that God wanted him to, but he knows he didn't do them, and the things that God needs him to do, he or told him not to do. He does he does those things and. He just always had sort of a a humility about him. And here he says, And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of of, of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, the, the transfiguration moment was not about the wisdom of men. I'm not sure Peter could have done anything there in that situation that would have been an, an, okay resp- an acceptable response. But he demonstrated the fact that our way of thinking is not enough. It's not good enough. It's not accurate enough. It's not holy enough. It's not righteous enough. And this was, to me, it was a pretty good example of how we should put that in check. And he even said so at the end, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So I think the most important point for us to learn from this story, and and maybe the most direct point for us to learn from the story, is the fact that it's all about Jesus. You think about God's response to Peter, and how swift it was and how interrupting it was the lesson to be learned there is that it's all about Jesus and and as we said people want these mountaintop experiences those experiences that they want are all about them they don't want that experience for the Lord they want that experience for themselves and it's really a selfish view of Christianity this whole touchy feely Christianity is really all about selfishness and it's not about Jesus and it should be Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I think this is a really, really good set of two or three verses that kind of say what we're trying to say here this morning. Everything was created by Him. Everything in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible. Everybody that has authority and power on this earth, it's because He allows it. It's through Him. And I never really paid much attention to this middle part before, but it says, and in Him all things hold together. Doesn't that make you think it's all about Jesus? He's the glue that holds everything together. And in everything, he might be preeminent. That word preeminent there is sur- means surpass all others, to surpass all others or to be distinguished. He surpasses all others. And I think the image we have of him on that mountain lines up with that pretty well. A little further in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, in verse number 6, maybe this, this passage maybe... W- if you had to really just, if somebody said, really, give me a 10-verse outline of what it means to be a Christian, what Christianity is about, maybe there's not a better passage than, than this in Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So there he, there he recognizes the deity of Christ. And he said, and it dwells in him in bodily form. He came to this earth as a man. That is God as a man. having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Who else would it be about if it wasn't about Jesus? Who else could all of these benefits come through? Can't happen. It's all about Jesus. And he said, he, he talks about the state of man, the state of man prior to becoming a Christian. And he compares that to... Old Testament circumcision. And he says, this is the circumcision of Christ. You're buried with him in baptism. You put away that old man. It's the circumcision of Christ. And you were raised through the operation of God. It's all about Jesus. As we close this morning, I want to read one more passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that I think kind of ties this whole transfiguration story all together. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So he's, he's talking about, he, he's using the old law as a reference and how, how Christ nailed that old law to the cross and how that veil was ripped down. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The word transformed that's used here is the exact same word, used in Matthew chapter 17 for transfigured. It's the the exact same word that comes from that metamorphosis word. And he says you're being transformed from the same image from one degree of glory from another. See, people want those mountaintop experiences. This is how you get them. You get them in Jesus. That's where the mountaintop experience comes from. That's where that kind of transformation comes from. He says it about as plain as you can say it. And people search for that and seek for that. And all the time it's found in Jesus. And I think that's the point we're supposed to learn from this transfiguration story. This story was kind of always growing up kind of mysterious to me. It kind of had one of those mysterious feels to it. And I I used to think there was some kind of big hidden meaning to this story. And I don't think it's that way at all. I think it's about as evident as it can be. And hopefully this morning we've demonstrated that. And hopefully you've learned something from that. If you're here this morning... And searching for your mountaintop experience, hopefully we've convinced you how to find that. There's not going to be some thunder and lightning moment. There's not going to be some emotional response like that that you're going to find that's going to, that's going to accomplish what you're looking for. It's a, it's a vain and useless search. You're going to find that through Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're looking for that. As we read in Colossians, that's found through the circumcision of Christ. And if you need to obey the gospel this morning, we offer an invitation for that. As he said, you're buried with him in baptism and so that you can rise in, in faith in the operation of God. You can walk in newness of life, as the scriptures say. Or if you're here this morning and you have any other need that the church can help you with, we offer an invitation to you as well if you would come as we sing this invitation song.